son, if a man can't preach after that, he probably needs to give it up. That was excellent music throughout the entire time. Praise God for it. Today I want to talk to you about the nature of unbelief and the power of the obedient witness. Tertullian was an early church father, and he made a statement that has become extremely popular through the years. And the statement was that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. How many of you have heard that statement? Many of you. I'm sure many of you have not. But there's a reason why that the blood of the early Christians, of the church of the living God, became the seed for the growth in the first century. And the reason was, there were many who would not submit to the tyrants who said, you cannot speak in the name of Jesus. They refused to recant. Uh, They refused to be told that they could not speak for Christ. And I think it's very important to remind ourselves today that we need to prepare for a time coming in the near future where you're going to have to choose either to obey those who command you to sin or to obey God. It's happening now. And I submit to you that as Christianity grows more strange or stranger to our secularizing society and culture, we are called by God to engage our culture. And we look around at times and we think, it's far gone. We look at the media. We listen to the way things are in the world. We think there's nothing that can happen. Well, you are called by God to engage our culture with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are called to do what prophets have always been called to do. We are called to bear witness. And you say, well, preacher, you may be a prophet under that title of foretelling the, foretelling the truth of the gospel, not foretelling the future. But I'm not a prophet. I beg to differ. If you are saved by grace through faith, you are called by God to be a faithful witness to the Lord that you belong to. That means you speak and you utter and you bear witness of what Christ has accomplished in your life. So that requires a different vision of who we are, how we fit in, in this time between the times. From Eden to Armageddon. You're living in the time between the times, and we're called by God to have the correct vision. And I think the best place is to start where Jesus does. And his vision was for his kingdom to be established. Our call is to what we might call engaged alienation. Y'all know what that means? Well, First Peter says that we're strangers, sojourners, and he uses the term resident aliens. That sounds a little off to us. We're not talking about those things that people think exist off the earth, which they don't. We're talking about the fact that you live in this world, but this is really not your home. Heaven is your home, so you're a resident of earth, but you're an alien here. Now check the other part out. Engaged alienation. Well, it's easy for our alienation, or the fact that we're aliens, to lead to isolation. The Bible will not allow you to do that. Everybody Jesus called, he called publicly. Everybody that was ever saved in the New Testament spoke for him. So as born-again believers, we're called by God to preserve the distinctiveness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we shall not and will not retreat from neighbors and from friends and from citizens in the sense that 
we're afraid or we have no courage to engage them with the gospel, folks, that's what your friends and your neighbors and your family needs more than anything else in life is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we have an opportunity uh, to bear witness in a culture that doesn't even pretend to have the same values that you have. Even on the political front, for some of you who may be thinking about that, it would be a terrible travesty to get the right president and the right Congress, but get the wrong Christ. And of course, we've been learning about the right, the only Christ, right? Jesus of Nazareth has given in the Word. So Peter is going to give this awesome declaration in chapter 4, verse 12. Y'all remember that? There is salvation in no other. Why? Because there's only been one name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved, and that's the name of Jesus. Remember, we learned something. That's just not refuting pluralism or many ways to heaven. Peter knew that those Jews only believed that there was only one Savior. His name was Yahweh in the Old Testament. So this is an audacious claim that Jesus is actually Yahweh God who made the worlds. So salvation is in no other There's no other name given, and you must therefore believe in that name exclusively in order to be saved. Now that brings us down to verse 13. Is everybody awake this morning? All right, let's listen to the word. Remember, the nature of unbelief, lock in for a few minutes, okay? Lock in with me just for a few minutes, and the word of God. We're learning about the nature of unbelief and the obedient witness that is clear in this text, the power of the obedient witness. They're going to run synonymous kind of uh, throughout the text. Now, verse 13. Now, when they saw, now this is on the hills of Peter's great uh, explanation of the only way to heaven. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now, who, who, are, who are these men? Well, it's the 71 that makes up the Sanhedrin, all the religious elite, the power brokers in all of Israel. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Don't you like that statement? And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, y'all remember this guy? Begging at the uh, gate beautiful, lame from birth. And this text tells us in verse 22, we didn't know this in Acts 3, but verse 22 tells you he's 40 years old. So congenital birth defect, born, could not walk, lame from birth. This guy's standing right beside them. Hey, when the miracle is standing beside of you, you can't give too much opposition. And that's exactly what the text says. They had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council... They conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus." But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man, here's that summary reminder, everybody listening. For the man 
on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Now, let's do a couple of things. First, let's make some observations from the text as we read the narrative in that particular genre. Then I want to finish by giving you a couple of applicational thoughts. Is everybody ready? This means yes, this means no. First observation. Observation number one. Check out the boldness of these men. It's going to become, starting here, one of Luke's favorite terms. It is actually parousia in the Greek language. And it's interesting that it means boldness, yes, but it means openness and frankness. It means courage that is unhindered with the freedom to speech and proclaim, speak and proclaim the name of Jesus. It's going to become a, uh, it grew to become that in the meaning of boldness. And it carries with it courage, confidence. And Luke's going to use it over and over and over again in the book of Acts, led by the Holy Spirit of God. In other words, they had this ability to speak with confidence and courage without fear. We would call it holy boldness. Right? They had holy boldness given by God to them. Second observation. They were uneducated. Now, uneducated can mean that you're illiterate. And this is obviously not the meaning because Peter and John will write books. Y'all do know that, right? Peter will write books and John will write five of them. Peter will write First and Second Peter. So... It's obviously not the case. It can also mean those who have not been trained by the religious elite and or the school of the rabbis. In other words, these guys were not theologically trained. They didn't have their seminary cards to pull out of the pocket and show their credentials that they had a right to speak in the synagogue. There's another word tied to the uneducated in this text, and it's called common. It means ordinary men. It means they were not religious professionals. They were untrained, catch this, ordinary blue-collar workers. How do we know this? Their overalls and their accents give them away. Right? They're not Jerusalemites. They're from Galilee. So they immediately know that these are not part of the religious elite. That's the observations that they make. Now, what, are, what were the results of the Sanhedrin? The passage says that they were astonished and amazed. These men are not trained in rhetoric or logic or theology, and yet they're speaking and proclaiming this with incredible boldness. And here's the third observation. They began to recognize that they had been with Jesus. I like that phrase a lot. It's an awesome statement. Now, there's probably a couple of reasons why they came to this conclusion, that they had been with Jesus. The first one is this. Jesus presented all kinds of trouble to these men before that, did he not? Right? If you just flip back a little bit in the neighborhood, some of you may not can find Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but you can probably find John. Right? All you got to do is turn left. Turn left, and you'll find John chapter 7, verse 15. Here's what it says. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? And Jesus is going to go on and say, My teaching's not mine. It was given to me by my Father. So, this may be the very reason why they recognized or began to recognize that these men had been with Jesus is because as many times as they tried to silence Jesus, they could not do that. Chris has been preaching through Mark, and you're starting to see these 
come to fruition where people are going to stand against him and say, well, what about this situation? What about feeding on the Sabbath? What about this situation? And Jesus is always going to leave them on the horns of a dilemma because they have no way of knowing how to answer him. I mean, he drops the atomic bomb on them over and over and over again. Look, it's not a good thing to argue with Jesus, right? And every single time, he leaves them in the dust. And so these disciples remind the, the Sanhedrin of Jesus. Why? Because he was their master. I would say that Jesus did a pretty good job training his disciples, would you not? But there's a second reason they may have, it may have registered with them. They could have visibly remembered seeing these two following Jesus Christ. These men would have been very familiar with all the ministry of Christ because they're the ones that put him on trial and crucified him. They would have known the association. Okay. Now here's the fourth observation. The healed man is standing right there with them. Now catch the picture. I mean, they're, they're before the religious elite. They're in their semicircle. They're looking down on the ones who are accused. And here's this lame man who's grinning like a donkey eating briars. Y'all know what that looks like? You know that he wants out of there because he wants to keep running. Because he hasn't been able to run in 40 years. And now he's incarcerated standing there. And I bet he's just gleaming in his face thinking, man, I want to get out of here so I can walk further and I can run and I can jump. So the fact is, they've got this mock trial and they've got a dilemma. And it's made even more difficult because the living, breathing miracle is standing right there with Peter and John. What are they going to do? That's their observation. They have nothing to say. They can't argue it according to the text. They can't oppose it. At this point, the depth of their unbelief is absolutely amazing. Isn't it? Now lock in the depth of their unbelief. These guys are stripped down to nothing. And everybody knows it. And their unbelief is exposed. Their hypocrisy is exposed. And this is accomplished by two ordinary men and a lame man that spent 40 years as a beggar. Pretty amazing. Now verse 15 and 17. We're introduced to the first unbelief conference. You ever gone to one of those? It's an unbelief conference. It's an unbelief session. And they gather together after they send them out. And they confer with one another. They try to come up with some kind of ideas of how we can deal with this. Now remember, this is kind of comical because they're the power brokers in all of Israel. They're, they control all things. They're the religious elite. And yet they're in a secret meeting trying to figure out what to do. They ask this question. This is God's inspired word, is it not? Now, by the way, it says, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? Well, if this is a secret meeting, then how did Luke know what to write? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Acts chapter 6, verse 7 says that, we're not there yet, many of the priests came to faith in Jesus Christ. Very possible that after they come to faith in Jesus Christ, this very council shared with Luke in his investigation before he wrote this book. Isn't God good, right? Now, we know this is inspired Scripture, and God could have just said, write this. But the fact is, Luke knew full well what had happened. And so there's this 71 men on this council. And as many times as they heard the gospel, you know for sure that many of those men believed in Jesus Christ. So here's the question. What are we going to do with these guys? they got limited options, right? They give these concession statements. Look at the text. 
First, it's obvious that a miracle has happened through them. I mean, folks, he's not holding the tin can anymore. And his uh, ankle bones came back together with sinews and the whole nine yards. Do you understand how incredible that miracle is? We're not talking about somebody who once walked. We're talking about somebody who's never walked. And yet God heals him immediately, transforming, restoring power of Jesus Christ. And he's up walking. Second, it's clear to everyone living in Jerusalem that this man is healed. Why? Because they probably threw a coin in his tin can at some point or another. Everybody knows it. And third, here's their concession. We cannot deny it. Why? Because the man is standing right there beside them healed. So they knew the man because he was in their sight. Everybody in town knew this guy. When I was growing up, I worked a lot of construction work. Uh, I loved to frame and to run a skill saw. I mean, when I start thinking about the smell of wood, I just get, mm, I want to do it, right? But we did this when we were kids. We grew up in a church with a lot of construction workers. And one particular area we did a lot of building was in Hartwell, Georgia, about 15 miles down the road. And there was a well-named beggar beggar in Hartwell, Georgia. His name was Grady. And everybody knew Grady. As a matter of fact, his punchline was, Hey, pretty, give me a quarter. But it didn't sound like that. It was like this, Hey, pretty, give me a quarter. And he'd tap you on the shoulder. And you turn around, he was this little bitty small draw, draw, uh, bald head. Oh, sorry about that. Bald-headed man. <laughs> but he was real little, real short. And he'd tap you on the back and you'd turn around. It would startle you. Hey, pretty, give me a quarter. And most of the time, we'd give him a quarter. Everybody knew Grady. Let's heighten that. The awareness of people knowing this man above Grady would have been exponential. There's no question about it. Everybody in town knew this guy. He was famous. Now, it says to everyone living in Jerusalem, how many converts do we think we have safely at this point? At least 15,000. Even in non-feast days, you had as many as 50,000 living in Jerusalem. Even on non-feast days. So let's say there's 100,000 people there. Folks know about the miracle. They've got a dilemma, don't they? What are we going to do about this? Their third concession was, we can't deny the fact that the man was crippled from birth. And in verse 17, they don't want it to spread. You notice they use that pronoun, it. They can't even bring themselves to say the gospel or Jesus or anything else. They say, we don't want it to spread any further. They won't even say the name of Jesus. This guy has been healed, saved by grace through faith, and physically healed They don't care about that. All they care about is they don't want it to spread. What's the conclusion? Well, let's warn them not to speak in his name anymore. Let's basically, we're power brokers. We're religious elite. Let's let's intimidate them. And remember, they've got their long beards, funny looking hats, long robes. Maybe we can intimidate them. Well, it worked well for Jesus, didn't it? When they tried to intimidate him. And in verse 18, they're commanded not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Remember, they thought the problem of Jesus had been solved. They put him on the cross, right? Their response was actually a confession of their weakness. There was, in fact, a law of the unlearned. And you know what that meant? You couldn't flog somebody on the first offense if they came into the synagogue and said something that you didn't agree with. As a religious elite, you had to give them a pass on the first one, and you couldn't flog them. On the second offense, you could. So they've got two things working against them. They're bound to their own law, and everybody in Jerusalem knows that this man couldn't walk, and now he can walk. The real issue comes out in verse 18. Look at it again. 
So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Remember what he quoted? Old Testament named that tune? The cornerstone has become the rock of offense. And so that's the offensive thing, is it not? The offensive thing is Jesus. Now, if that's not the tr- true, even today, just track with me. How many times have you told people about God and how you feel about God, even with all the warm fuzzies and people pat you on the back about that on your job? But how does the conversation change when you mention the name Jesus? Every, you don't get pats on the back when you mention that the name of God is Jesus. The pats on the back go away. The conversation goes away. Why? Because, folks, Jesus is the rock of offense. Of offense. The generic name God uh, might even get you a political office. But if you use the name of Jesus, Katie bar the door, right? They don't want that name spoken anymore. In verse 19, Peter and John give their response. It goes kind of like this. It's the literal term righteous. If it is righteous before or for God... To obey God or you, you be the judge, right? Uh, You guys feel like you're the rule of the day. You're the religious elite. Well, what is righteous? To obey you or to obey God? You be the judge. So Peter and John expose the utter folly of their unbelief. The apostles answer their own question, don't they? Because they're not going to stop speaking what they know. They're not going, they've made their minds up. And ladies and gentlemen, that's what we need to do as a church. Young people, you had a discipleship now. You know, you can get way up on this revival high and have a great weekend. And I know I was a youth, I was in the youth at one time, and I was a youth minister for 10 years. You have these spiritual highs and you just plummet right back down to the lows, right? And, and we get higher, we, we get this spiritual rush, and then we lose that. But the fact of the matter is that it all comes down to this fundamental issue. Are you going to obey God or not? Right? And Peter and John, this is actually not only about speaking for him, but about living for Jesus. Are you going to obey him or not? If you judge that it is wrong to obey God rather than you, understand clearly, we're not going to listen to you. We are going to obey our God. They had a fundamental problem, right? They couldn't keep their mouths shut. Kind of like Barney on Andy Griffith, right? They had a fundamental problem. It was a good problem. They could not keep their mouths shut. What they had seen, what they had heard, transformed their lives. It gripped them and compelled them and motivated them to speak of what they had seen and what they had heard. They could not contain it. Their soul was on fire. Do you remember Jeremiah, that prophet, who preached for 40 years and never had a single convert? Jeremiah says, the heck with this, I'm quitting. I'm done. But Jeremiah says, there was a fire in my bones. And it was God's word. And Jeremiah says, I can't keep it shut up in me. I've got to speak it. Isn't that awesome? He realized this. Peter and John are saying the same thing. Now check this out. When you've seen someone raised to life from the dead, wake up, right? When you've seen someone raised to life from the dead, When you've seen someone raise someone from the dead. When you've seen someone who can forgive sins and you've had your sins forgiven. When you have been restored and raised up and reconciled to God. And you've been taken from a place of being an enemy of God and now being a friend of God. How can you not talk about it? And they were just doing what came 
natural, normative disciple of Jesus Christ, they were speaking what had happened. And this verse becomes perhaps the greatest verse in the Bible about sharing your faith. Notice what it says. For we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. One of the greatest verses, we don't use this one too much, about proclaiming our faith or sharing the gospel, but one of the greatest verses in the Bible, more than you could ever imagine. So the best they can muster up is a threat. They release them, and the people are praising God for what has happened, and the Sanhedrin is having a meeting. Isn't this awesome? They're having a meeting, and the people are outside jumping up and hollering and Shouting to God, praising God for the fact that a handicapped man has been made well after 40 years. And Luke reminds us of the evidence, again, standing right in front of them, of a lame man being healed by God, which is ultimately a testimony to the restorative power of Jesus Christ to change a life. Now, let me give you two points of application. Number one, we're confronted with the nature of unbelief. If you've been disconnected, and you've glazed over like a donut, it's time to come back to me, okay? Because you need to hear this. You're responsible for what you're about to hear. All right? We're confronted with the nature of unbelief. Here are these men who openly confess that they cannot, check this out, they cannot deny what has happened. They cannot refute it in any way. They can't argue it. And folks, what's highlighted is that very nature of, of unbelief. Their sin has blinded them. Their sin has so hardened their minds and their hearts that they're so deeply entrenched in their unbelief, even when irrefutable facts are put right before them, they can still do only one thing in their mind, and that's respond with unbelief. Their response is what? Number one thing how can we keep this from spreading? And this, of course, we might call spiritual insanity. Yet this is exactly what marks the condition of an unbeliever. And that includes you if you're here and you're, unbeliever. you're an unbeliever. It's really the plain insanity of unbelief with irrefutable evidence. Don't you know the gospel is gone if they brought forth the body from the grave? But they couldn't. Why? Because as we've learned in Acts, it was impossible for the grave. It had one task. Death had one task, keep Jesus dead. Guess what? Couldn't do it. Right? It's impossible. So the fact of it is, that's the, the folks, unbelief is actually unbelievable to me. It is unbelievable that these men are responding this way. Check this quote out. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. We should not feel disappointed when people don't believe the gospel as if something has gone wrong. This is the mistaken notion. The idea that the gospel was a message that must appeal to men and women is all wrong. By nature, people have always hated and rejected the gospel. What did Jesus say about that, by the way? I'm off the record for the quote. Not D. Lloyd-Jones. He didn't say this. Jesus said, they hated me. They'll also hate you and the gospel. In rejecting the gospel, back to D. Lloyd-Jones... In rejecting the gospel, they do not realize that they are proving the truth of the gospel and the Lord's prediction. In rejecting this message, the world is rejecting the only thing that can save it. Folks, let that sink into your mind. Every time you reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are rejecting the only thing 
that can save your soul. Every time you get up and zip your Bible up, and you walk out of this auditorium, and you've been under the sound of a gospel, God has been so gracious to you, so that you can hear one more time that Jesus saves. And so folks, understand the magnitude of what you are doing. You're not only rejecting the testimony of the preacher, and the preaching of the word, and the testimony of the churches, and the witnesses, you're pitting yourself against the God of heaven. How can we say anything else other than the fact that Jesus of Nazareth was God incarnate, right? I hope you've learned that in the book of Acts. He's the everlasting Son of God. He's the Word made flesh. He is the eternal God who made the worlds. He's the everlasting God, our Creator. And you will stand before the judgment bar of heaven one day in the future. Everybody in this church will. And the nature of unbelief is absolutely unbelievable. The religious pride swells up in them. They think, hey, we've got the temple. We've got the temple. Glory, hallelujah. We've got the temple. They had the temple, but they didn't have the true temple. And the true temple is the Lord Jesus Christ. So these guys were puffed up religious pride. They did not realize that their rejection of the message of Jesus Christ was rejecting the only hope of salvation they would ever have. And that's what you do every time you reject the gospel. The only salvation that you will ever be offered. When people are confronted with the incontrovertible, irrefutable truth, and they walk away, and they want no part of it. That's what happens over and over again. It happens in this very church. The nature of unbelief is absolutely staggering. And if you are an unbeliever this morning, may God have mercy on your soul. May God Almighty have mercy on your soul. And may He open your eyes through grace to behold Him for who He is And the very gospel and the very Christ that you've rejected over and over and over again, I pray God removes the scales from your eyes and the callousness from your heart so you can see Him for who He is. And if you do, it'll be all because of Jesus, not because of you. Right? That nature of unbelief is staggering. Never forget this. Unbelief is absolutely unbelievable. One more thing. We're confronted with the power of the witness of those who have been with Jesus. Unbelief. Man, the nature of that, unbelievable. But what about the power of those who have been with Jesus and that witness? One of the most awesome texts in the Bible to motivate us to share our faith is this particular one. You know, have you ever felt guilty for not sharing your faith? Raise your hand. Come on, folks. Everybody in this room, if you're saved, you should have felt that. You ever feel guilty that you should have shared your faith? You walked away from a situation and you did not do it. And then we hear this message from the preacher the next Sunday. I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God and the salvation to those who believe. For the Jew first and also the Gentile. And we think, oh, that's exactly what I am. I'm ashamed of myself because I haven't been unashamed of the gospel. God, I should be sharing my faith. Help me do that. And so in the midst of our guilt, we make this vow that we're going to do it tomorrow. Right? Haven't we done that, Jeff? Tomorrow, on the job. I'm going to share my faith with someone. And tomorrow comes and you say, Cardinals play this afternoon. Right? First game. That's what most of you are thinking about. Cardinals play this afternoon. Son, opening day. And you walk away thinking, oh, man. In Alabama, it would have been roll tide. Right? That's what they would have thought. But the fact of the matter is, you walk away and that weight of failure is on you because you, you knew that you were going to share Christ with them. You wanted to do this and you knew you had the opportunity, but you didn't do this. 
Now please understand me, there is a role of guilt that should play in your life when you don't tell others about Jesus. But that shouldn't be the motivating factor. It's going to only last as long as the next prospect walks up. Because you'll fail again. You certainly will. So there's a much better motive for sharing your faith. I've been with Jesus. Are you all awake? The Bible says, having been with Jesus. Well, it's being among Him. And what we've seen and what we've heard. When you're in daily communion, look folks. How can you ever hope to be an example for Jesus and a witness when you never pick up the word? Hello, Tokyo. Are y'all awake? Look, when we never pick up his holy word and feed on it, how can you ever think that you're going to open your mouth and be a witness when you haven't communed with him? I mean, there's dust on the Bible. There, how can we ever think that we're going to witness for Christ when the only music that we have coming into our ear are things that are secular? And worldly. And you don't fill your mind with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And all the young people say, oh, it's okay, preacher. We can deal with both of them. We can listen to the music. We can watch the movies. And we're good. Bull. Baloney. What you put into your mind, ladies and gentlemen, is going to come out in your life. As the old preacher says, what's in the bottom of the well will come out in the bucket. Every single time. And you can't fill your mind with the things of the world and not change them with the things of the word and expect to be a witness. Here's another one for you. Yep, I'm in the neighborhood. You can't expect to be a witness for Christ if you're not around God's people. Folks, that's why people who come to church regularly are the ones who witness for Christ and go on mission for Jesus. Think with me for a moment. There's a reason why you never open your mouth. It's because you're never around the people of God. You're looking at me like I'm crazy. I might be a nut, but I'm screwed on the right boat. I promise you that. And the fact of the matter is, folks, yes, listen to me. There's a reason why we don't speak. Look, folks, where is Christ? He's with, he's with his people. Think about this. If we don't come together, if we're not meeting together and fellowshipping together and Taking the Lord's Supper together. Look, I'm going to pray every one of the plagues of the apocalypse to fall on every one of you if you're not in church next Sunday morning for the Lord's Supper. <laughs> Get ready for it. It's the crying shame that we can have the broken body and blood of the Lord. Now, it's symbolic, but it's a crying shame that the, Jesus would say, do this in remembrance of me. And we all just say, well, we don't have to go. Oh, we're, we're having the Lord's... Preacher's not even preaching. We're just having the... Folks, you're missing. You're missing worship to God. Because you're not willing to stop long enough to say, Thank you, God, for what you did on Calvary for me. Thank you for your shed blood. Thank you for your perfect life and body that you laid down for me. I'm about to preach myself happy. All right? <laughs> now, I don't know where I was, but look. The great motivation. The great motivation... Having been with Jesus. Right? Having been with Jesus. What a great motivation. It's to see and to hear what Jesus is doing. Folks, if you're not in and around the people of God, you don't see Him working. You don't see what He's doing. And when you start seeing what God is doing, you can't keep your mouth shut. I mean, it's contagious. So what is the one, what is the, one of the first things... You feel you need to do when you pray and God shows up and performs something awesome in your life that you only know God could do.
What's the first thing you want to do? You're going to tell it. Well, what is the greatest thing that's ever happened to you in your life? Folks, God gives you joy through salvation. Now, wait a minute. Is it just joy for you? No, folks. You want the people in the world to have the same joy in Jesus that you have. What a selfish thing for you to have joy in God and not want others to have joy in God. Hence, evangelism. Hence, making disciples. Peter and John had been with Jesus. They had to speak of what they had seen and what they had heard. I pray that God Almighty would motivate us to share Jesus simply because we have been with Jesus Christ and we can't stop talking about it. And all God's people said, Amen. Father, this is your word. Salvation is your gift. And God, I pray for that person. And Father, I do it with conviction because, Lord, unbelief is unbelievable when we see your word and we hear of the witness. Lord, it's not just some kind of story in the past, it's a historical fact of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Of all the people, scholars, world renowned people who have tried their best to tear down the gospel. They've never succeeded once. God, thank you for that. But Lord, we don't even have to see the tomb in Jerusalem to know that you live. Because you resurrected our hearts. You live in us. God, I pray for that one person in this auditorium, or multiple people, that are in the state of unbelief. God, we have to bow before your sovereignty because you are sovereign. But Lord, we pray you would touch their heart. And they may be 80 or 90 or 40 or 10 or whatever their age. But if they're lost, they're lost. They're in a state of unbelief. And I pray, Father, that you would move them to the state of belief. That they would trust Jesus. They would repent and believe and have their sins blotted out. God, would you do that? And for unbelievers, Lord, help us to spend time with you so that we're prepared to speak to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.